everyone. Welcome to episode number four of Chilled and Killed, a true crime podcast where we discuss a crime over a glass of wine or two. We're your hosts, Sam and Amanda, and this week we are discussing a story about a man with a terrible upbringing who turned his adulthood into even more of a terrible story. For this week's wine, we chose Washington Hills 2017 Late Harvest Riesling. children killed onto our wine glasses <laughs> that's awesome well she didn't even tell me about it no i was waiting for your reaction like that <laughs> that is really freaking cool all right let's test our wine wait cheers cheers with our new glasses yes <laughs> that is so cute yep that's apple juice yeah <laughs> yep wow and i love apple juice <laughs> that last week you said it was apple juice Uh uh-uh it's this is actual apple juice there's no bubbles it's just straight juice which we needed because the story that we're about to tell this week is very dark and gloomy and all sorts of messed up so we wanted a little bit of a wine that was refreshing and light and happy because this story is not happy far from it but Um, yeah Straight apple juice, that's all you need to know. It's so sweet. Late harvest Rieslings tend to be um, very apple I don't know. I don't know why, actually, but because there's no apple in wine. Do they use, like, apple-hinted things? Like, can't you add things in as, like, a flavor? Like, they don't use chocolate, but sometimes you get chocolatey flavors. I don't know how that happens. All right, so the back of the bottle says... Since 1988, Washington Hills has crafted iconic wines from Washington wine country. This sweet, rounded Riesling boasts notes of rich, honeyed apricot and ripe peach from extended time on the vine. Enjoy chilled. So I guess we're wrong and it tastes like honeyed apricot and peach, but my palate says apple. (laughs) Yeah, apple. It's definitely, if you like dry wines, don't have this one. It is so sweet. Yeah. Honestly, I don't even really like sweet wines that much. This is a little too sweet. I agree. This was a, this, this is a good entry wine. Yeah. If you're going from apple juice to wine. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, if you don't like wine, I think you'd still like that. (laughs) Yeah. So, moving on. Not our favorite, but it'll do for the night. Right. Do you think it's too sweet? Yeah. <laughs> I think for me now, I think when I started drinking wine, this would have been perfect. But I think for me now, I'm just a little bit, it's like one glass because it's too sweet. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. All right. So Amanda, do you want to start us off on the story of the Gainesville Ripper? Yeah. Um. All right. So 
Danny Rowling was born May 26, 1954 in Shreveport, Louisiana. He lived with his mom and dad, Claudia and James Rowling, and then he had a younger brother named Kevin. Danny's father was a police officer for the town that they lived in, and despite his honorable job, he was not that much of an upstanding citizen himself. He would often tell Danny that he and his brother were never wanted in the first place and would physically abuse all the members of the family. He had been abusing Claudia basically since they got married, and she became pregnant almost immediately, and James was not happy about it. For Danny, the abuse began at the time that he was an infant. His father did not like the way that he would crawl and would actually beat him to change the way he was crawling. After Danny's younger brother was born, Kevin, Danny started getting abused more and more and would often take more of the beating than his younger brother. There was even one time when his father was embarrassed of Danny, so he was pinned down to the ground, handcuffed, and escorted out of their home by the police. He would get tied up about once a month and beaten at least once to two times a week by his father, according to Danny's mother. Danny's father ended up getting the family a puppy at one point, and Danny really enjoyed the dog's company. He even stated that he felt like he had something that he could confide in and be friends with. Well, Danny's father, just like he did to everybody else in the family, would beat the dog and even ended up killing the dog due to repeated torture. And as if it couldn't get any worse. After that torture, the dog ended up dying in Danny's arms. What a monster. Honestly. So, as we can now see, from the time of birth, Danny had a very troubled childhood. When Danny was nine, he failed third grade because he missed too much school due to an illness. The school counselor reported that Danny was suffering from an inferiority complex with aggressive tendencies and poor impulse control. She requested that he meet with a counselor, but that never happened. This made his mother have a nervous breakdown, and she ended up leaving with the boys, but returned back to James, the father, only two weeks later. At this point in Danny's life, he started turning to music to serve as a release of emotions. He would often play guitar and sing his prayers. By the time that Danny was 10, he actually failed out of third grade again due to additional abusive encounters with his father. Danny, at that point, begged his mom to leave with him and his brother and to never return home. They did, in fact, leave, but again, returned back after only a few weeks away. By the age of 12, Danny started turning to drugs and alcohol as another release from his torturous world. His father found him and a friend drinking at one point and ended up dragging Danny home by the neck and had him thrown in jail for two weeks. After getting out of jail... He decided to run away from home and ended up spending a few nights living in the woods. At this point, he started to develop sadistic views and would have fantasies about sexual violence. He would even masturbate to fantasies about killing and controlling people. When Danny was 14, he saw a naked girl for the first time. His curiosity caused him to start peeking through neighbors' bathroom windows. His father caught him looking through the windows one time and started beating him up because of it. Danny was getting sick of the beating and ended up attempting suicide, but the attempt did not work. He started having more dreams about people beating him and torturing him while his demons would travel through his body. By the time that he was 17, he was put in jail two more times for intoxication. He became more aggressive and more violent and started hunting and killing animals. 
He tried to get enlisted in the Navy after dropping out of high school, but failed the enlistment test. He ended up joining the Air Force and moved to Texas at the Lackland Air Force Base. Then he moved to Florida where he worked as Security and Strategic Air Command. Now getting into his adulthood, Danny ended up getting forced to leave the Air Force on honorable discharge due to charges with drug possessions and disobeying orders. Reports even stated that Danny tripped on acid over a hundred times while in the service. After discharge, Danny returned home and moved in with his grandfather. He started reattending church services, became very active in church activities, and was even baptized. He ended up finding the woman of his dreams, Omatha Ann Halco, and married her at the age of 20. Shortly after marriage, they had a daughter named Kylie Danielle. Their normal life only lasted a few years before Danny started reverting back to his ways. He started drinking, smoking marijuana, and even became aggressive and threatening towards Omatha. She ended up filing for divorce after only three years of marriage, but Danny was not happy about this. He ended up putting a gun to Omatha's head and threatened on several accounts that he would kill her and or himself if she tried to leave. Six months later, the divorce was finalized. He was enraged by this and ended up raping a woman that looked just like his ex-wife. Later that year, he got into a very bad car accident that caused a woman to die. He was tormented by this accident and started becoming very suicidal. He ended up getting arrested in Georgia for these crimes and admitted to his robberies in three other states. He was sentenced to two concurrent six-year terms. While in jail, he was allowed to work out on the grounds doing yard work and cutting down trees. During one of those times, he tried to escape and was actually successful for about 100 yards until the officer fired off a warning shot, which caused him to surrender. But this was not the only time he tried to escape. After getting moved around a few times between prisons and mental institutes, he ended up at St. Clair County Jail to finish up his sentences. In a quick side note, he actually spent about three months in a mental institute, but the physician deemed him sane, so he was sent back to jail. When dumping garbage one afternoon, he ended up escaping and wasn't found for three days. He spent three more months in the Alabama Classification Center until his sentence was finished. I'm surprised that he wasn't getting any additional time for all of these breakouts. I was surprised about that, too. You would think that they would add something on or, like, three months is not a lot. No. Once he got out of jail, he visited his mother and father. After getting into a fight with his father, he ended up moving in with his aunt Agnes for a little bit. There was one encounter when Danny was 30 where he was stalking a young girl through her window. And this is about to be a wild story. He ended up breaking into her home with the intent to rape her, but decided not to after she started crying. He said that he felt bad, and instead they ended up talking, drinking coffee together, and singing songs before spontaneously having consensual sex with each other. Weird. So weird. You go in with that intent, and then you end up convincing her to do it, but in a way that she wants to do... (sighs) I don't even understand how if someone breaks into your house, you don't call the cops and then you're like, hey, you want a cup of coffee? You sit down and you have a conversation with them? No, it's like, get the hell out of my home. Yeah, that's that's backwards. (laughs) I like read that and I was like, this is just so strange. But anyway, after that whole encounter, she ended up driving him home, which is still weird. But then he decided to flee town in fear that she would call the police. 
He ended up hitchhiking around Florida for a while and somehow traveled to California, Colorado, South Dakota, and Georgia visiting family. I believe at this time he was hitchhiking, but there were other reports of him getting into a motorcycle accident, so I'm not sure if he actually had a vehicle during this point. So shortly after landing in Georgia, he ended up robbing another grocery store for only $300 and then also stole a family's car. He was caught the next morning and sentenced to four more years in Jackson County Jail, but he escaped again by simply walking off and swimming in the Snake River in Mississippi. Okay, either he was just really good at escaping or he went to really terrible prisons that did not keep track of where he was. Right. Uh, I'm not sure which, but I don't, at least today, I don't think it's this easy to escape jail. Or I hope not. Yeah. But it wasn't even that long ago, but yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. So he was paroled from the Mississippi Penitentiary with the understanding that he would remain in Shreveport. Also not sure why they thought he would stay in Shreveport, but whatever. So at this point, Danny was in and out of jobs. He ended up getting fired from one of his jobs for missing three consecutive days of work. He was not pleased with his boss and even threatened to kill him if they let him go. At the same time that this was occurring, three bodies were found in the Shreveport area. Julia Grissom who was 24 at the time, her father, Tom Grissom, and her nephew, Sean Grissom, who was only eight. In May of 1990, Danny was just about 36, and he and his father got into a heated fight. Danny pulled a gun on him and ended up shooting him in the stomach and head, and Danny's dad lost a lot of blood. He lost an eye and an ear, but he actually ended up surviving. Doing what he does best, Danny broke into yet another home. This time, it was the home of a man named Michael Kennedy. Danny ended up stealing papers to change his identity in two handguns at the time. He fled to Sarasota, Florida, and started his life as Michael Kennedy Jr. He broke into another home where he stole a man's car and fled to then Tampa, Florida. He then broke into several more homes, robbed an additional convenience store, and fled the scene leaving much evidence trailing behind him. He wasn't done breaking into homes. On Friday, August 24th of 1990, Danny broke into the home of Sonia Larson, age 17, and Christina Powell, also age 17. These two girls were two college freshmen attending the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida. At the time, he was armed with an automatic pistol and a knife. A little forewarning for all of our listeners, this part of the story starts to get a lot gruesome. After sneaking into these two girls' homes, Danny taped Sonia's mouth shut and bound her hands together, then stabbed her to death. He then moved on to Christina, where he then taped her mouth and bound her hands as well. He forced her to perform oral sex on him before raping and stabbing her to death. He returned to Sonia's dead body and proceeded to rape her as well. He then cut the nipples off of the girls' bodies and kept one for himself. The next day, Saturday, August 25th, He broke into the home of Krista Hoyt, who was 18 at the time, and she was also a sophomore at Santa Fe Community College. He raped her and sliced her body from her breastbone down to her pubic bone. He then cut off her head and placed it on a shelf on the other side of the room, and then he propped her body up in a sexually graphic way on the edge of the bed. He also cut off her nipples and placed them beside her on the bed. These poor women. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 
So the Gainesville police get involved with Sonia and Christina's case on Sunday, August 26th at around 4 p.m. just to do a welfare check because the families of the girls were getting concerned after not being able to get in touch with them. Upon entering the apartment, the police noticed a strong smell and end up finding both of their bodies. They call for backup and around 20 officers show up. They determined that the murders happened between the 23rd at 11 p.m. and the 26th, which would be the day that they're on, which is pretty accurate because it actually happened on Friday, so they were right in the middle. So his other victim, Krista, had been found when an officer performed a welfare check for her because she hadn't reported to her midnight shift on Monday the 27th at the sheriff's office. They called her phone, but she did not answer. Initially, they thought that she was just running a little late, but they ended up sending an officer out to her home anyway. They noticed that her car was still there, but they were not getting an answer from the door. They looked around and noticed they could peek into her bedroom window and were able to look underneath the blinds. Officers had found her body. At this point, they noticed that all of the bodies had been mutilated in the same manner, making them believe that the murders occurred by the same person. On Monday the 27th, a press conference was held and a task force was put together. At this point, rumors are flying around campus about the women being killed. The police are trying to reassure the public, but students and parents are understandably concerned at this point. Many people were concerned that they had another Ted Bundy-style killer on the loose, someone who was just running around murdering for fun. Students were sleeping in groups and overall just doing everything they could to stay safe together. The links between the cases made the police truly believe that they were dealing with one person. All the bodies had nipples cut off, and not to mention they could tell that the knife was the same knife used on all three bodies, which was a four to six inch blade, but they determined that it was a K-bar knife. Also, tape had been used on all of the individuals, and all of their underwear was missing from the scene. This task force included top crime scene technicians and investigators from both departments, along with a representative from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, the Florida Highway Patrol, and the top 10 criminal behavioral specialists from the FBI. Despite this task force put in place, that was not the end of the road for Danny. On Monday, August 27th, he broke into another apartment and killed two more people, Tracy Paulus, 23, and Manuel Manny Taboda, who was also 23. These two had been friends since high school and decided to room together during college. Manny was a high school football player. He was 6'3 and over 200 pounds, so he did not give up easily. Danny did not mutilate their bodies like he did the others, but the authorities believe that it was only due to fear of being caught or interrupted. Both of them were found because a friend of Manny had been trying to get in touch with him for a few days, but with no success. And on Tuesday, he decided to go to his apartment to check in, but the door was locked and no one answered the door, so he got a man from maintenance to unlock the door. Immediately, what they saw was Tracy's naked body lying on the floor in the hallway. So the police were called and they discovered that Manny was also found dead in his bed, but with evidence on his arms that he did put up a fight. All of these murders took place within two miles of the university. The school took quick action and canceled classes for a week and suggested that no one travel alone. By the end of August, thousands of students had left campus, and many of them did not return due to fear of the murders. 
At this time, there was no evidence to link Danny to these cases. He had removed the duct tape off of the victims so they wouldn't get any fingerprints, and he used cleaning solvents to rid of any semen. The police's first suspect was a man named Edward Humphrey who lived in the same complex as Manny and Tracy. This man seemed strange to most people and was known for being aggressive and violent. Police started surveillancing him, and on October 30th, he was actually brought in due to a violent argument he had with his grandmother where he actually ended up hitting her. The FBI used this as an opportunity to interrogate and question him about the murders, but there was still nothing to charge this man with because there was no connecting him to these cases. The only charges at the time were assault charges against him from his grandmother, but she ended up dropping those charges. The police, however, really wanted to keep him in their custody because they thought that this was their guy. So they ended up reinstating the assault charges with a million-dollar bond, which is extremely high, especially for a first offender assault charge. Yeah, I don't think I've heard of, like, a million-dollar bond. Unless you literally actually murdered somebody. Yeah. So the media is going crazy with information at this point. They have deemed him the Gainesville Ripper and even created headlines saying, number one suspect, with photos of him plastered everywhere. They ended up searching his car and apartment with a search warrant granted after four days of trying, and surprise, surprise, they didn't find any information to link him. However, he was still named the number one suspect up until the time that Danny was sentenced, which wasn't until 1994. What didn't help Edward was that no more murders had been committed since they had taken him into custody, so it would appear to the public that they had gotten their man. While all of this was happening, Danny started getting sloppy as he was fleeing the area. He broke into several apartments and stole the keys to a car, leaving behind hair and fingerprint evidence. He started robbing more convenience stores and almost got caught at one point, escaping by fleeing into the woods. Danny didn't stop, though, and robbed the Winn-Dixie grocery store on a Saturday afternoon, the busiest time for that store. He forced the manager at gunpoint to open their safe, and while that was all happening, another employee called the police. Danny managed to leave the store and flee in a car, but the police were just behind him. He didn't make it too far before crashing and then attempting to flee again on foot, where he then still didn't make it too far and ended up getting caught and further charged with armed robbery and grand theft auto. He was jailed in Ocala, Florida in September of 1990. At this time, the police did not connect him to being the Gainesville Ripper. Authorities in Shreveport, Louisiana were starting to work with Gainesville authorities due to similarities noticed between the cases. They picked up on many similarities between the Gainesville murders and the triple homicide which occurred in Shreveport in 1989. The link between these two states seemed weak to the task force at first, but that was until that they were aware that the Shreveport killer had also cleaned his female victim and also positioned her in a shocking manner. They noticed that both cases had a killer that displayed knowledge of police investigative techniques and thus thoroughly cleaned the crime scene all other similarities started to become too strong to ignore. Between the meticulous cleaning, the knife used, the removal of duct tape, and more. Special Agent Dennis Fisher checked on the status of Danny Rowling and was informed that he was held on two charges, armed robbery and grand theft auto. There were also two other holds on him from other law enforcement agencies, one from Shreveport for attempted second-degree murder and another from Hillsborough County, Florida, 
for Grand Theft Auto. This dude likes to steal cars. He likes to steal everything. That's true. (laughs) The task force began re-examining every crime that occurred in this area during the time of the murders and noticed that a robbery at the First Union National Bank occurred the same day, August 27th, that Krista Hoyt's body was discovered. When reviewed, it was found that the suspect of the robbery had abandoned his campsite in the woods, where belongings were then found, such as some bedding, a gun, ski mask, and a screwdriver, and a cassette tape deck. Amanda, can you explain this? Because I don't really understand how they found that connection to the campsite in the woods. Yeah, so basically they had found this campsite because he had fled through the woods to his campsite when he had robbed the bank. And so they were able to take all of these possessions in at that at that point, but they were all still just connected to the bank robbery. So now that they're re-examining all of these crimes and they're cross-examining, they realize that a lot of these things probably could have been used in the murders, so they take a deeper dive. Okay, that makes more sense. So then what they find is the cassette tape deck had a few tapes still left with it. One of the recordings, which was recorded on the night of the first murder, stated, quote-unquote, This is Danny Harold Rowling, out under the stars tonight. He then proceeded to tape a farewell tribute to his parents and ended the tape with, quote-unquote, Well, I'm going to sign off for a bit now. I have something I got to do. Now going back to the other items found at the campsite, each of the items were sent out to be tested in the laboratory. One of the most interesting findings was found through vacuuming the campsite. They had found a pubic hair that they found the DNA matched to Krista Hoyt. And they were also able to determine that the screwdriver was the same one that was used to pry open the doors at all three scenes. So at this point, police have something to go off of. They now have a connection between the suspect for the First Union National Bank robbery and something that connects them to the Gainesville murders. And with this information from the cassette tape, they had Danny Rowling in their sight. However, they needed to confirm that he was, in fact, the Gainesville Ripper. Luckily for them, Danny was convicted of yet another robbery. So they took him out of his cell, and prison officials collected a bunch of his personal belongings, his bedding, and even some hair from a recent haircut. One of his teeth had also been extracted by the prison dentist the day before, so they used that for DNA testing as well. All of this was sent to the FDLE the Federal Department of Law Enforcement, in Ocala, Florida. Authorities were concerned that these items might be ruled as inadmissible in the future, so the state attorney insisted that new blood and hair samples be taken from rolling with a warrant, as they should be. The test results irrefutably established a link between Danny Rowling and the three Gainesville murder scenes. Finally! <laughs> This break in the case did not take long for the media to spread the news of their new prime suspect. The stories revealing Danny's past began to spread. Everything about Danny's life came to light. People learned about his abusive father and submissive mother, his problems in elementary school and not passing high school, his honorable discharge from the Air Force, his drug and alcohol problems, and his failed marriage. People learned about his eight years spent in jail and the countless other robbery charges, They learned that he was wanted for attempted second-degree murder after trying to kill his own father by shooting him. And now, they learned about his involvement with the Gainesville murders. 
By the time this case was ready to go to court, the police had collected enough evidence. As he was awaiting trial for the Gainesville murders, Danny was also charged for several other accounts. In July, he was indicted for both the First Union National Bank robbery and the Ocala Wynn Dixie robbery. He was found guilty in 1991 for the armed robbery of the Wind Dixie grocery store and charged with a life sentence. And then, during September and October, he was found guilty for burglary and robbery and was charged and convicted for three more life terms. During all of this time, Danny attempted to commit suicide several times, but was never successful in doing so. While in prison, he became friends with another inmate named Bobby Lewis, the only man who has been able to escape from death row in Florida. Danny wanted to escape from jail and figured that Bobby would be his best shot at doing so. Although he never escaped, he and Bobby became pretty good friends. Danny told Bobby about all of the details with the murders. He told him that he had been planning these attacks since back in the 80s when he first went to prison. He admitted to having a bad side to him that he could not control, which he blamed on his father's abuse and neglect and his relationship with his ex-wife. January 31st, 1993 is when Danny finally stated that he wanted to confess, but he only wanted to do so through Bobby Lewis. So for three hours, Danny agreed to everything that Bobby was stating to the investigators, and it was all recorded. He confessed to planning and committing the five murders in Gainesville, but also admitted that he had originally planned to kill eight people, one for every year that he had spent in prison. He even stated that it was the demon in his head named Gemini telling him to do all of this. However, I'm going to go ahead and call bullshit on this, and I'm not the only one, because Gemini is also the name of the main character in The Exorcist 3, and in the movie, he severs a head and disembowels the victim. So I don't know how much credit to give either way, but it's just something to note because the movie came out not too much before he murdered in Gainesville, and the similarities are uncanny. Danny went back and forth on whether he should plead guilty or not for his charges of the Gainesville murders, which are five counts of first-degree murder, three counts of sexual battery, and one count of armed burglary. His public defender urged him to plead not guilty, saying that even with the substantial evidence they had against him, they might be able to avoid a death sentence by blaming these acts on his upbringing and his prior psych evaluation. But if he pled guilty, he would almost certainly get the death penalty and wouldn't be able to appeal the convictions, only the sentencing. He ended up signing a guilty plea just a week before the trial was set to begin, saying that it was because he did not want the crime scene photos to be shown in court. On February 15th, Danny took sole responsibility for the murders of the five people in Gainesville, so all the jury really needed was to determine if he should receive death penalty or not. And despite the guilty plea, which Danny gave to avoid the evidence being shown in court, the evidence was still shown. Some of it included the semen found at all three scenes that matched Danny's DNA, even though he had tried to rid the body of the evidence, and the various items found at the campsite, like the screwdriver which linked back to the pry marks on the door, the bloody pants, the K-bar knife, and if that wasn't enough, they had a handwritten confession from Danny that he had given to another inmate in prison, as well as the confession tapes made through Bobby Lewis. It took the jury two days to weigh the options, but finally came to the conclusion that Danny should be found guilty and receive the death penalty on all five charges. On the final judgment on April 20, 1994, 
the judge ruled Danny Rowling to be sentenced to death for all five victims he murdered. On that same day, Danny also confessed to the three murders back in Shreveport, Louisiana in 1989. I mean, that doesn't really do much for him for further sentencing, seeing that he was already receiving death penalty, but it did give the family some kind of closure. On October 25th, 2006, Danny Rowling was executed by lethal injection. He was 52 at the time. At his final time of death, he did not apologize for his acts. He had no comments and showed absolutely no remorse for his actions. All he wanted to do was sing hymns. 47 people witnessed his execution, which doesn't really seem like a lot of people, but it was for that type of event. Rowling became the 63rd inmate to be put to death since Florida resumed execution in 1979, and he was the third person that year. So, sometimes people find it interesting what an inmate requests for their last meal. Some people don't, but we found this, so I'll just tell you. Danny requested lobster tail, butterfly shrimp, a baked potato with the toppings, and strawberry cheesecake for dessert. And also, he wanted sweet tea to drink. Unfortunately, Danny Rowling does have some sort of a legacy, if you will, because the movie Scream is based entirely on his story. But instead of the victims being college students, they are high school students in the movie. There was also something good left behind, a better legacy, for the victims that were harmed by this terrible man. There were now memorials across the University of Florida campus, including five trees planted in honor of these victims. There is also a mural urging students to never forget. So okay. honestly, this, this case was just, it's hard to research, it's hard to talk about. This was a crazy one. This, like, we were doing research, and then, like, I think it was, like, 11 o'clock at night. I was like, all right, I need to go to bed now, but this is terrifying, and I can't go to bed right now, otherwise I'm going to have nightmares about this man. <laughs> yeah. Which I often have nightmares about serial killers. Yes. <laughs> and it's terrifying. Yes. And this is something we, like, look up all the time, so, yeah, you kind of have to figure out a way to deal with it. <laughs> I watched Gilmore Girls instead. Perfect. To fall asleep. No. Gossip Girl instead, actually. That's mine. That's yours? Yeah, I'd watch Gossip Girl. Mm. Smart. <laughs> but either way, you got to have something because people like this, they're just so monstrous. Like, how are you that way? Yeah, I don't know. And, like, you can bring it back to his childhood of everything that he kind of had to endure. But at the end of the day, he still did all of this. Like, I totally get that you're a product of... Yeah, you're, you're a product of your environment growing up, but I'm not... Well, and the courts didn't let him get away with it, with that excuse either, so... Yeah. If you were eight and you were in that traumatic situation and then you murdered, that's I think a that's... Story. Yeah, that's different. But you you're are a not. You're a full-grown man and... It's inexcusable. It's horrible. So bad. The other thing that I can't stop thinking about is how when he went to get psychiatric evaluation, like, they said he's fine. They said he was sane. So it's not even like he could use, like, excuse that, no, he's just having a psychotic break. Like, this nope. is the type of person he was. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it all proved it, which is why he was spending life sentences and upon life sentences and then executed. Mm -hmm. So yeah. whether or not you believe in the death penalty, that's its own thing. But this man is not around to hurt any more people. So there's yeah. a plus side to it all. Yeah. I don't know. I just didn't, I did not thoroughly, I did not enjoy researching this crazy man. No. 
All right. Well, let's uh, talk about our wine, I guess. I didn't even touch it. I know. Mine's not gone either. And we're on the first glass. Yeah. Comparatively to last episode. We had a couple bottles. (laughs) (laughs) So this one's just not. It's too sweet. It's so sweet. And if I wanted apple juice, I would be doing that with my breakfast in the morning. And I don't really want apple juice right now. No, I want some Sauvignon Blanc, honestly. (laughs) Yeah. It just doesn't taste like wine. So definitely thumbs down for me. Me too. This is like a legit thumbs down because this is a wine that we would like. This is not red. This is not just giving a thumbs down to a wine we already kind of knew we wouldn't like. I love Riesling. I just don't love this one. Yeah. It's not bubbly. It's just sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening this week, even though this episode was a little bit daunting. But be sure to follow us on Instagram at Chilled and Killed Podcast or send us an email with any questions, comments, or requests at chilledandkilledpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll be back next time to talk about Maura Murray. Until next time. Bye! Bye.